I realized earlier, as I made kind of a cultural reference to the Secretary of the Agriculture, that some of you may not have gotten it. Uh, just you don't really think about succession plan and, and things like that, and so therefore any sort of reference, worldly reference like that, cultural otherwise, is sort of lost on you. And that's fine, and it's probably somewhat demographic and age and everything like that. I get it. And so for those of you that may not have gotten that one or really kind of responded to it, I'll give you another one. So Brendan and I went to Oklahoma City this past week. And, uh, you know, we got to spend some father and some time, and, and we drove down there and, you know, got to talk about all kinds of things. And that was certainly a awakening for me in many ways. But as we pulled into the hotel and we stayed there downtown, right there, you know, kind of downtown Oklahoma City. And as we pulled into the hotel and we getting our bags out, everybody there at the hotel kept asking us the same question. Are you here for the concert? Are you here for the concert? And I'm thinking, ooh, there's a concert. And it must be something big. You know, I'm thinking, you know, and in my mind, I'm going through all the people it could be. I'm thinking, oh, it could be that, it could be that, it could be that. And, oh, how great that would be. Until one of us asked, well, who is it? Justin Bieber. <laughs> See, I got some of you on that one. Justin Bieber was in town. Justin Bieber was in town. And we were like from them. And as we went downtown to eat, it was about the time that the concert started. And, and so we're, we're, and we just laughed and, and I know we shouldn't. And, and I, you know, and I probably should repent of it, but you know, it's just, it's just not a sin to laugh at people that like Justin Bieber. I just don't think that it is, you know, especially when they're dressed in all kinds of frilly purple and everything like that. And, and, and that was just the moms, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Then you had the little girls and, and everything else, and, and so we, we, you know, we just continued to laugh and just kind of, it was just kind of funny and just kind of all these t-shirts that everybody had made, and, and so we find a restaurant, we're kind of eating there, and we just happen to eat by the window, and we watch them traipse by, and it, it's just fun. And Brendan gets up, and he's going to go wash his hands or something like that, just about the time the food arrives, and, you know, and I'm just really getting tickled and somewhat judgmental. <laughs> Because here comes a dad doing it. And the dad's decked out in purple, and he's kind of got this little Justin Bieber shirt on. And it's, and I just kind of, you know, I'm trying very hard. not. And so finally, you know, the waitress is there, and I just happen to say something about the whole situation. You know, just kind of, you know, just kind of nothing really cutting or really bad or anything like that. And, and she didn't say anything. She just stared at me kind of with a slightly condescending tone, and I thought, oh. And she said, you realize that you and your son are eating at a fondue restaurant. You guys didn't get the fondue reference. Oh, my word, this isn't going to work. A fondue reference. Honestly, okay. It failed, didn't it, Brendan? And I realized, and I kind of looked around, and I thought, we are the only men eating here at a fondue restaurant. And as judgmental as I am, I probably shouldn't say anything. And so go to Psalms chapter 68 and let us get as far away from Justin Bieber and fondue as we can possibly get. That's the setup. Oh, sorry about that. Again, Secretary of the Agriculture, we may be working our way down you know, somewhere here to the press secretary here pretty quick. Um, 
In Psalms chapter 68, and there's nothing unique about the, the, the message that, that is conveyed about God. There's nothing unique in, in terms of what's being said or anything. It's the manner in which it's being said. There is no new principle. There's no new philosophy. There's no new, nothing like that. No new insight into the God's nature, but it's, it's the graphic language that I love so much. And because there are times when I think in my life, and I really need Psalm 68, verses 1 through 4. I need a visual image. As I do my daily battles with whatever it is, and, and whoever it is, and, and however it is, as I do those battles, I, sometimes I just need a graphic image, like Psalms chapter 68, verses 1 through 4. And the manner in which the psalmist so eloquently and paints this picture of the way that God deals with his enemies, the way that God will deal with those that oppose him, the way that God will deal with anything that is any way contrary to his will and his nature and his purpose and his desire for us. Let God arise. The psalmist starts. In the midst of everything going on, he says, let God arise. You know, that, that conjures up so many visual images to me. You know, so many things, you know, even from my childhood. When I would think about, you know, you know kind of pushing dad just a little bit too far. And as long as he was seated, I knew that we were fine. But for dad to arise meant the tone in the room changed. Let God arise, the psalmist said. Let his enemies be scattered. Now what he's going to do, he's going to go on and he's going to describe just the scattering of God's enemies. Not just the defeat of them. Not just the reigning over them. Not just the supremacy over them. But the manner in which when God arises, his enemies Scatter. And let those who hate him flee before him. And I think of those that verse, just that one verse. And I look time and time again in the Old Testament, in the battles that the Israelites and God's people would encounter. And how you know, God would tolerate so much. And his patience would persevere for so long. Until finally the sin and the havoc... The frustration, the disobedience was enough, and God would arise. And immediately, his impact was felt. Immediately, his very nature, the very nature of his presence caused all that were enemies of his just to scatter. And I love that visual image. You know, whether they scattered as they saw Goliath fall, or whether they scattered as they saw the rains fall and they knew that there was nothing they could do. God's enemies scattered. He goes on to say, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. You know, this couple of days ago, we're shooting off fireworks. You know, a bunch of people got together. In fact, I recognize some of you from that. You, know, you look a little bit different, you know, dressed up on Sundays, and that's great. 
but you know, we got together. And we had the, the kids were off there, you know, shooting fireworks. And, and, you know, I'm one of those parents that believes that not everything Darwin had to say was wrong. And there's a certain self-selection that takes place whenever you let kids do dangerous things. And, and so we're all kind of watching. And I didn't mind the, the loud firecrackers or hey, that wasn't so bad or, you know, kind of the, you know, the occasional grass fire. That wasn't too bad either. But every now and then I'd get annoyed at some parent that would dare allow their kid to have a smoke bomb. You know, as you're sitting there, I just, I, I mean, I love fireworks. I love all of them. I don't understand a smoke bomb. I really don't, let alone a smoke bomb when I'm eating. It just doesn't make sense to me. And if you're one of those parents, well, you've been rebuked. Anyways, so, but every now and then, one of those smoke bombs would go off. And it's amazing to me how despite how colorful and how noxious that smoke is, with just a little gust of wind and just a little moment or two, it dissipates. The smoke just scatters. And it's that mental, it's that visual image that the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. Is yep, it's noxious and it's annoying and it's frustrating, but when God arises, his enemies dissipate like a smoke bomb. Forgotten and unseen. The presence no longer felt. He goes on to say, even as wax melts before the fire. And again, the mental image that he's, he's trying to give us right now is just this roaring fire. And just, you know, as you get the wax closer to it, at some point in time, the wax just melts. Because that's the nature of wax and that's the nature of fire. It can't help but happen. When the fire arises, the wax melts. When God arises, his enemies dissipate. He goes on to say, he says, and let, the, and, and let the righteous be glad. Why should they be glad? Because of what he just said. Because of the way smoke is driven away, the way wax melts, the righteous should be glad. Let them exalt before God. Let them rejoice in gladness. And as I look at verses like this, I think of my own life and things that are going on, and I think, I like these verses. Because God wants me to rejoice. God wants me to exalt. God wants me to smile. God wants me to be confident. God wants me to get really, really excited and really, really humble when he arises. He says, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before him. What a passage. And again, there's nothing new about the nature of God that we're talking about. It's, it's the mental picture that he's trying to paint for us. That in the midst of everything that we deal with, every crisis, every tribulation, every trial, every temptation, everything that could go wrong, will go wrong, does go wrong, in the midst of all of that... When God arises, it all disappears. And it may take a day. It may take a week. It may take a month. It may take a decade. It may not fully even dissipate this side of eternity. But when God arises, 
his enemies flee. And how desperately sometimes I think I need to hear that and remember that. But for the remaining minutes, as desperately as I need to hear that and as desperately as I think we all need to remember that, I think there are mornings like today when maybe we need less of verses 1 through 4 and a little bit more of verses 5 and 6. And that's where we're going to spend the balance of our time. Because after he paints this image of enemies being just fleeing, enemies dissipating, as he paints this this powerful arising, in verse 5, he talks about God and he says, A father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. One of the things that so impresses me, so scares me at times, is the way that the Holy Spirit, as directed by God, groups certain topics. And transitions, while in my mind they seem to be so very abrupt, really make a lot of sense. And are done so intentionally. And this is one of those transitions that just absolutely just kind of just stops me in my tracks. As we go from this description of these enemies of God and the way that God deals with the enemies and the way that God's presence drives out the enemies and the way that God's nature is just so consuming to all those that would do things contrary to his will, then he quickly and in the same breath and in the same category and in the same grouping goes on to say, and this same God deals with other sorts of enemies as well. He is a father to those that know no father. He is a judge for the widow. And when the Bible talks about being a judge for the widow, there's numerous passages. You can go to Amos and the others, where one of the things that God so very loathes is for widows and those that are less fortunate to be treated with any sort of injustice. And one of the reasons, and he just absolutely abhors that. He hates that. He condemns nations. He condemns the nation of Israel at times because of their behavior in allowing widows, allowing orphans, allowing those that don't have the physical or mental capacity to take care of themselves, to look out for themselves. He just absolutely hates when they're taken advantage of. And so what he says is, you know what? I will be your father. And I will see to it that you have a judge. I will see to it that regardless of your situation, regardless of your frailty, you will have justice. And he says that in the same vein and in the same breath, if you will, that he talks about the pursuit of his enemies. What I really like and what really sort of catches me is verse 6. Because not only does he talk about the, you know, the, the dissipation of the enemies, and he talks about the, the fatherless and the, and the widows, then he goes on to say, God makes a home for the lonely. God makes a home for the lonely. It's unfortunate, but loneliness is really starting to get out of control. Loneliness is becoming one of those things that as a society we face. 
It's becoming deeper and deeper. It's becoming more and more prevalent, which seems so odd because our population continues to get bigger and bigger. Our proximity to people continues to get closer to closer. But yet, as you talk to psychologists, we feel more and more alone. And loneliness is one of those things that, that it's different in the sense that, you know, there's sort of a unique thing that maybe makes us, each and every one of us, feel alone. There's a uniqueness to how we have that feeling, but yet there's a commonness to what happens when we feel it. And we understand the despair of loneliness. And if you're sitting here and you have either been alone, you are going to feel lonely, or today you are lonely. And the message for you is God makes a home for the lonely. There are three things I want you to think about this morning as we talk about God making a home for the lonely. Three things as we talk about loneliness real quick. Number one, there's far better things in this sermon. God has far better resources. He has equipped saints far better to deal with loneliness than what you're going to get over the next five to seven minutes. In this very congregation, there are some of the most Lonely fleeing hugs, if that's a word, you will ever partake of. In this congregation, there are the words and the ears of people that have the ability to drive loneliness away like you wouldn't believe. And so seek those out. But I did have to get that disclaimer. There's far better things in this sermon. The second thing is, if you are lonely... You are in very good company. Go back to the very beginning. Go back to the garden itself. And you begin to understand that our God is a God who's concerned about the lonely. And from the very beginning, God's purpose in bringing Eve into this world, as he talked about it, was it is not suitable for man to be alone. From the very beginning, our God is a God who has strived and who has put forth tremendous effort into making sure the lonely had a home. And as you flip through the pages of the Old Testament, one of the things you'll see is there are people. There are people that have done phenomenal things on behalf of God. At the very direction of God, for His purpose, at His will, at His beckoning, who have experienced battles of loneliness. You can go and just grab your Bible and just open it. Just go back to, to Genesis. And you watch as they go through periods of loneliness. And again, you know, loneliness is unique. It's as unique as we are. Loneliness to you might be very different than loneliness to me. For some of you, the lonely time comes from, you know, an absence of interaction. For some of you, your loneliest times are when you're in a crowd. And, and again, there's a big difference. And, and, and you have to see that there's a huge difference between being alone, that is by yourself, and feeling lonely. And, and we understand that. I mean, there are times that Anita and the boys will run to Topeka, and they'll be up there for the weekend, and I've got projects or work or something like that, and I'm home. I'm home alone. But I'm not lonely. I mean, I miss them, but it's not like I'm lonely. I've got barbecue and I've got chores and 
Got a football game. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. One pair of underwear for the weekend. Hey, I'm set. But there are times when they leave and the house is just a little too quiet at night. Bedtime is just a little too deafening in its silence for me. It's lonely. And we understand that. In fact, not only do we understand that, but we also recognize just the, the, the potential impacts that it has. And like I said, every Joseph came from a big family, felt alone a lot. I look at Job. Job sat, and even though he had three of what he thought were his friends around him, his wife had already told him to curse God and die. Job was lonely. And we understand, and you watch them. You watch the prophets of God go by themselves. You look at Elijah who would go from these great highs of this message that he would bring only to be sort of banished out by himself. With his only physical way of being nurtured is, you know, the provisions of God. Some of you remember Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca was a pretty decent leader. He headed up, you know, at one point in time, at least two major automobile companies was summarily fired from one of them. And what he would write in his book about being fired, about going from this great high to this great low, wasn't so much that he was fired. In fact, he said his biggest surprise of his career wasn't that he was sacked from the powerful position, he said. It was what happened afterward. Nothing. Nothing happened. He said, I was hurting pretty bad. I could have used a phone call from someone who said, let's go get coffee. But most of my friends deserted me. It was the single greatest shock of my life. A very powerful, charismatic leader. Tons of friends. Everybody wanted to follow him. Everybody wanted to talk to him. And in an instant... He couldn't even find someone to go have a cup of coffee with. We know things to be, you know, even somewhat of a premonition of things to come. Listen to this quote from 1978. Sometimes I get so lonely, it's unbelievable. Life has been so good to me. I've got a great wife, great kids, money, my own health, and I'm lonely and bored. I often wondered why so many rich people commit suicide. Money sure isn't a cure-all. 1978. O.J. Simpson. In recent times, there's probably been no single event that has so rocked a nation like the day and the morning there at Columbine in Colorado. It, it forced us to rethink schools. It forced us to worry about things as parents that we never had to worry about before. And what a horrible day it was when Eric Harris and Dylan Claybolt went in 
killing themselves and many others. Listen to what one of them wrote in his journal weeks before. I hate you people for leaving me out of so many fun things. You people had my phone number and I asked and all, but no, 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 no. Don't let the weird-looking Eric kid come along. Loneliness is a very real emotion. And if you are experiencing it, it is not some weird disease that has befallen you and nobody else. You are in great company. Our Savior himself understood loneliness. Understood what it meant to be alone. Understood what it meant to be forsaken. Understood what it meant to be denied by those that claimed love for him. Finally, number three, and this is the part that gets exciting. Our God is a God who battles loneliness for us. And that's such an important thing. Because so many battles that we have, we are so willing to give over to God. We're willing to give Him the battles of frustration. We're willing to give Him the battles of our finances. We're willing to give Him the battles of our conflicts. We're willing to give Him the battles of our work and our friendships. We're willing to give Him all those battles. But for some reason, loneliness is a battle we won't give Him. For some reason, we think that he is all about slaying the Philistines and, and dealing with Amorites and Hittites and, and how he's, you know, all of that, the disbursement of the enemy. That when God arises, he does so to vanquish those that are, that, that do things contrary to his will. That when God arises, he's there to bring justice. When God arises, he's there to remove tears. And when God arises, he's there to remove all these infirmities and everything else that plague us day in and day out. And what you need to understand in verse, in chapter 68 is our God does not simply arise to take care of the enemies that we see and the battles that we are all aware of. When our God arises, he also arises. To be a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows, and to make a home for those that are lonely. Turn over into Colossians chapter 1, and we'll end there. Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now understand something here. Verses 21 and 22 aren't new passages to us. We've read them before and we talk about them. We get excited about them. And we tend to think about it, you know, in a certain context. But notice how he begins this process. Although you were formerly, look what he says, alienated. And if there's one emotion that tends to come up time and time again with those that feel loneliness, it's this idea of being alienated. I'm alienated from that group of friends. I'm alienated from that group of people. I'm alienated from that joy. 
I'm alienated from doing those things. I'm alienated from a right relationship with my family. I'm alienated at the end of the table. I'm alienated in the marriage. I'm lonely. Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him wholly blameless and beyond reproach. This isn't just a message of reconciliation. Embedded within this is also the message of loneliness. You who were former lonely in your sins, despaired in your view of life, evil in your deeds, you have now been reconciled into the very body of Christ. And in the very body of Christ, it may happen from time to time, but God's pursuit is that there may be no loneliness. Because we're reconciled. And the very family that he talks about you know, might just be the spiritual family. This morning, God calls everyone. He dissipates and he causes his enemies to flee. This morning, he's calling the lonely. And if your loneliness has to do with not being reconciled with God, or if there's any other alienation we can help you with, we invite you to come while this morning we gather and we sing.